Hello, this is Daryl Macias, your host for the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast for June 2019. We'll be catching up with Dr. Steve Roy about a paper that's in the journal about the use of chemical heat packs and prolonging ultrasound battery life. Then we'll talk to some folks in Bolzano, Italy, and we'll talk about possible missions to Mars and what Terra X Cube can do to help us get research done before these eventual missions. And then we're going to talk a little bit about diversity in wilderness medicine. So let's go. I have with me Dr. Steve Roy calling in from Thunder Bay, Ontario, Canada. Steve, it's great to have you on the podcast. What have you been up to since our last podcast together? Since my last podcast, I have been doing lots of different stuff. We continue to run our uh, residency elective in wilderness medicine at McGill. Um, our, we now run a, a diploma in mountain medicine uh, or diploma in wilderness and expedition medicine and uh, continue to be doing some wilderness research and working in between all of those things. Well, as we have often discussed offline, you and I also have another commonality. That is the use of ultrasound in the backcountry. And now we're here to discuss your paper in the journal that you just published, Using Chemical Heat Packs to Prolong Ultrasound Battery Life in the Cold. So please tell us a little bit about that study. Absolutely. Uh, so in the wilderness, as you know, the ultrasound is one of the very few investigations that we can do. Um, we can ask, we're able to answer a lot a lot of questions with it, but it's limited by the fact that it has a battery. And especially in suboptimal conditions, when you have, uh, you know, a storm, you're in the mountains and you're tent bound, you may not be able to recharge your ultrasound. And importantly, some ultrasound machines actually cannot even be used when they are being charged. Um, they can only be used when um, disconnected from the power supply. And that creates a, a problem whereby um, the usable battery life is a potential major limitation of the ultrasound in the austere environment. So basically what we did is we wanted to find out if we could prolong battery life in cold conditions, since cold is a major limiting, is a major limiting factor in uh, ultrasound runtime. So what we did was we took uh, a bunch of V-scans we had on loan from General Electric we tested the batteries and charged them inside until the lithium-ion batteries were all full. We then allocated them in a randomized crossover design to either chemical heat packs or control conditions for each trial. This meant that uh, in a given trial, two machines would have chemical foot warmers applied to the top and bottom of the base unit, and two machines would go without the heat packs. We then put them outside in the snow and let them run in the cardiac preset and recorded how long it took the batteries to fail. Once the machines all died, we brought them back inside, let them warm up, recharged them to full, waited for the weather to change a bit, and we put them back outside in a, in a new randomization. So we recorded the, the, the battery run times. We also re recorded some other variables. We were mostly interested in the effect of the intervention, but we logged temperature on site and the local meteorological data to help better characterize characterized the environmental conditions that these devices were being subjected to. Uh, we then analyzed all this data in a mixed effects uh, ANOVA with some descriptive statistics as well. ANOVA is useful for comparing, testing, 
three or more group means for statistical significance. It is conceptually similar to multiple two-sample t-tests, but is more conservative, resulting in fewer type 1 errors. And um, essentially what we found was that the ultrasound machines had significantly decreased usable battery life with decreasing temperature and increasing wind speed, which is expected. More importantly, we found that the chemical foot warmers greatly increased the average runtime of the ultrasound machines, both within the trials and in our overall comparison. So the average machine runtime uh, was more than 20 minutes longer when the heat packs were applied than in the control group. This was quite evident even before we actually ran the statistics because there was a point in every single trial when the ultrasound machines in the control condition had both lost power, but the, the two machines with the foot warmers were still running. So we were excited to see that this intervention worked uh, because we think it has implications in prolonging the battery life, the usable battery life of uh, ultrasound machines in the mountains and in other cold, austere environments. So just to clarify, it sounds as if the ultrasound machines were turned on while rewarming the battery and the left on versus rewarming the battery pack beforehand, then turning the machines on without a heat pack. Yeah, so we were trying to simulate, we were trying to test this in a way that it would be practical. Our interest was really in would it be practical to go out in the wilderness with an ultrasound machine and plan to use a heat pack to get more battery life out of the, the machine? So the way that we did this was we said, okay, we'll take the, the heat pack out, we'll take it out of its package, we'll shake it for a minute, we'll put it in a sheltered place for nine minutes, sort of to simulate the, you know, putting them in, in the pocket of your jacket while you get the patient into a position that you could ultrasound them in, and then apply them to right away to machines that were already cold. So these machines had already been sitting outside for half an hour and were basically at ambient temperature outside, so in the range of, of minus 10, minus 15 degrees Celsius, and then apply them to the bottom and to the, the top of the ultrasound machine and to turn it on right away and use it then. So they, the machines are not pre-warmed, they're actually pre-cooled to the ambient temperature and then had the heat packs applied. And probably you would see a, a, a larger effect if you put if you had some time for the, the device to uh, be warmed. But this was you know, sort of practical. Can you just apply it and, and start scanning? It sounds like you guys found at a mean temperature of about minus 7 degrees Celsius, you had a mean battery life increase of 22 minutes. Now that's pretty astounding. And you also had quite a nice large range of battery life. Did that range depend on the age of the battery or the type of battery or anything like that? Or was this a happenstance finding? Yeah, so that's a good question. There were, there were a couple different factors. There were a couple different factors. The first, the first was that the temperature range varied and the batteries were greatly affected by the temperature so uh, the the runtime in the colder temperatures when it was minus nine uh, with a wind chill of, of minus uh, 14 minus 15 these runtimes were, were shorter than the runtimes at minus four when the wind was was uh, less fast 
but also there was a little bit of variation between the devices. They all had previous use. They were um, demo models from GE, so they had been worn to different degrees. So the batteries did perform slightly differently, but clearly the temperature and the environmental conditions were the more important determinants of battery life. And then were you actually able to measure wind speed? Because it sounds like faster wind speeds or the wind chill decreased battery life. Were you able to parse out those variables of wind speed apart from the temperature? Or was it simply that wind chill itself affected performance? So we we record we didn't record wind speed on site. We used uh, meteorological local meteorological data, which which should be very similar for given the proximity to the the meteorological station. These measurements were important. The humidity was not statistically significant, but it was very close. It was the p was zero point zero seven. The p value for the wind speed was zero point. Uh, zero one, and the p-value was very low for the temperature, and this was expected when we think about wind chill, which is essentially a. Uh, there are different ways of calculating wind. Um, right. Wind chill is the effect um, that whereby people perceive air temperatures to be colder at increasing wind speeds, and this is mostly affected by temperature. And then, as the wind speed increases it is the second most important variable, and then finally humidity. So within our study, we saw these factors uh, reproduced from known me meteorological science. So wind chill is the effect whereby people perceive air temperature to be colder at increasing wind speeds. Now that's interesting. Um, it is important because people may not be clear about wind chill, which is not necessarily measured objectively by instruments. It's more subjective. Wind chill does not, I repeat, does not describe the cooling of objects below air temperatures in the presence of wind. As you say, the, the wind chill is is uh, commonly misunderstood. Um, it is the, the human experience of the effect of the wind speed on the, the perceived temperature. And essentially what happens is as the wind speed uh, increases, the rate at which we are cooled to the air temperature occurs faster. And, and that feels like a lower temperature without wind. But it's also true that for, for uh, an object, like an ultrasound machine, that when subjected to wind, it will cool faster to the ambient conditions. It will never cool below the ambient conditions. So although at minus 20, we might say it feels like with a certain wind speed, minus 30, to an object, it will just mean that it gets closer. It will, it will to an object, it will mean that the object will be cooled to minus 20 faster. So it's cooled faster, but it's not cooled to a lower temperature. So the wind speed is relevant in our study in that uh, it contributes to the rate of cooling of the device, which is similar to the concept of uh, wind chill. Okay, this is muy importante. Wind chill may actually have a lower perceived temperature than the actual temperature that's outside. But the wind chill doesn't make the machine colder at a lower temperature. In other words, if it were minus seven degrees Celsius, but with the wind chill, it is minus 14 degrees Celsius. Well, the battery isn't going to act as if it is minus 14 degrees, but rather minus seven degrees. So the wind chill only increases 
the rate of cooling, on the other hand, as opposed to having an equal temperature without wind, as I just explained. And please get that, and get that good. Although you didn't study it, it would also be interesting to study battery life under hotter human conditions. Now, did you study any other models besides the GE model? We, we weren't able to test any other models. This study was actually done three years ago. Um, at the time, there were fewer devices on the market. The uh, Clarius, the Philips Lumify, the Butterfly, none of these things were on, on the market at that point. Um, also, uh, we designed this study and carried it out during uh, our residency elective, and GE had loaned us these units for the ultrasound portion of our course, and so they just happened to be convenient uh, devices for us to test this hypothesis. We actually did a couple other experiments prior to the full-blown experiment just to get a sense, uh, a preliminary sense of what worked and what didn't work. And interestingly, we, we actually found that hand warmers were not effective in our preliminary study as opposed to the, the foot warmers, which was an interesting finding. And we think that this happened for a couple reasons. One is that the foot warmers have a, a, have a different design whereby they have one surface that's not intended to breathe they're designed to see a lot less air circulation as you would have less circulation in a boot than in a mitt and they are designed to burn at higher temperatures so for a variety of reasons they worked much better on the actual ultrasound devices because they stick to the device they burn at a higher temperature they don't need as much airflow whereas the hand warmers required a lot of airflow but because they couldn't stick directly to the device, you had to tape them. And once taped, a, a large surface area was now covered and not able to, to get airflow to allow for the chemical process to occur inside. Wow, that's very interesting that the hand warmers didn't work as well, if at all, compared to the foot warmers. Now, is there anything to add, Steve? I wonder if other devices might differ in battery life in the cold. Then, as, a, as you mentioned, we haven't tried it with the newer devices. And some of the, the devices, I think we would see, we, we may not expect the same results. These machines do generate a little bit of heat, and some of, some of them actually generate a lot of heat. The temperature at which you would need a, a device or a, a, a warmer is different for different machines. Simultaneously, devices that generate more heat are going to be restricted in how warm of a climate they can be used in because they will overheat much faster and Many of these devices are programmed to turn off when they reach high heat. That's one thing to keep in mind is that the devices themselves heat to different extents. Um, another thing to consider is that uh, some of the new devices on the market have batteries in the probes. So both the Butterfly and the Clarius have batteries that are inside the probe in addition to having battery in you know, your phone or tablet, whatever base unit you're using. And in these cases, you would potentially need to keep both if you were to rescue their battery performance in the cold. So depending on the unit that people have, the, the conditions can vary a lot. Um, and so we, we, had this, we had conducted this experiment on devices that have a single battery inside the base unit and not in the probe. And that's probably the use case that is uh, most it is most generalizable too. Now keep in mind that batteries that are contained within the probe, such as the Butterfly IQ or the Clarius, would 
also have different variability in the cold than ultrasound machines with respect to battery life. That is, there's going to be variability if the battery's out in the probe versus in the machine, probably, but we haven't tested that yet. So it sounds as if these models that we've talked about need to be studied as well as many other models. We'd absolutely be excited to, to test out the, the increasing number of devices we have available and see which ones need and which ones benefit from heatbacks. Well, thanks, Steve, for this great interview. Folks, read the article, Chemical Heat Packs as an Intervention to Prolong Ultrasound Battery Runtime by Steve Roy et al. in the June edition of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. Are you planning a manned mission to Mars in 2030? Well, I caught up with some investigators at the Terra X Cube. As you remember, we talked about this about one year ago. And Dr. Damian Bailey from the University of South Wales is interested in this subject. Now remember that the Terra X Cube is run by the group EURAC, E-U-R-A-C. Now I got to speak about drones over there in search and rescue, but enough about me. First, let's talk to Rachel Turner from the University of Birmingham to discuss the utility of this huge chamber. Remember that this huge chamber can simulate an altitude of 9,000 meters at 40 below zero temperatures with wind and snow blowing at your face from all kind of directions. So, Rachel, why is this Terra X cube so unique? I think the huge asset that we have here is that we're very much based in open science. We have a facility here that is not available elsewhere in the world in this capacity. So you have other facilities that are part of uh, militarized programs, for example, for specific purposes, mostly aeronautical. And here we have a facility that can not only do hyperbaric uh, hypoxia, normobaric hypoxia, but also environmental factors, which is very unusual. Essentially, there's only one other in Europe which can do a similar functionality but not to the same level. So we can go higher uh, in terms of altitude, we can go higher in terms of temperature and also lower. So a huge cooling capacity and also these uh, precipitary parameters, so rain, snow, uh, very unusual and very specific to the setting that we have been uh, researching, so emergency mountain medicine. Okay, Damien, you're on. What is it about Terrax that could offer some new insight into what NASA is identifying by 2030 will be running a manned mission to Mars? The, the single biggest challenge for astronauts at the moment is an increase in pressure to the brain. And the problem with that is it causes blurred vision, which of course is a huge problem for an astronaut driving a ship, um, and also a variety of neurological symptoms, headaches, space motion sickness. So a journey to Mars and back is going to last about three years, so it's a big problem, but we don't know what causes it. So having looked around the Terrax closely now, uh, I can see that you've got a number of extreme environments that you can manipulate. Cold, lack of oxygen, a change in gravity potentially, uh, and all of these things can simulate almost a very unique, with all of those stresses, very unique ground-based spaceflight analog. And to round it out, let's talk to Sandeep Dillon. Dr. Dillon discusses going up 8,000 meters in 2007, and he had to take his own blood sample up there on Everest. And let's talk about how much easier it's going to be to use the X-Cube. Uh, I'm Dr. Sandeep Dillon. I was the climbing leader on the Cordwell Extreme Everest Expedition in 2007. 
I was one of four subjects who had um, femoral arterial blood gas samples taken at 8,400 metres on the balcony. That was extremely challenging to do because of the weather conditions. We had some unique data that showed the lowest oxygen levels in healthy human beings. Now that we have the Terex cube, it should be possible to recreate those conditions and to scale up that kind of experimentation uh, to include more numbers to find out how well people can tolerate such hypoxia. So it appears that we can parse out the uncontrolled variables in doing in situ studies at high elevations, and the X-Cube is a promising place for excellent mountain medicine research, so stay tuned for further updates. Now we'll hit you with a completely different topic, the topic of diversity in wilderness medicine. What? Diversity? There is a big meaning to that in these days, and it doesn't mean diversity of wildlife, but that could be applicable. No, diversity in wilderness medicine and diversity in wilderness. Last year's WMS summer meeting in Utah could have been a case in point for myself and for somebody else that I'll mention a little later. Last year at that meeting, I met a doctor from India. India, yes, India. There's also a wilderness medicine fellow from UCLA whose focus wasn't climbing. It wasn't diving. It wasn't doing the next ultra. It was fishing. Fishing? Hmm, why not? And last month, I visited Columbia University to do Grand Rounds in the Big Apple, New York City, to talk about wilderness medicine. Honestly, I had some preconceived notions about the receptivity of a topic such as austere medicine in a land of plenty. But apparently, the talk went extremely well, better than I had anticipated, and in the course of all this, I made a new friend, a chief EM resident who happened to be black who was really excited about that whole subject. Now, this very talented individual was also a vet who had been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, which could have certainly enlarged his interest. You see, perhaps the usual demographic of the predominantly white male being involved in wilderness medicine or other outdoor activities is changing. Now, I recall a few years ago being called out on a technical rescue outside of Albuquerque. There was a mutual aid terrestrial search going on, and there was a rescue group that accompanied us, and it was otherwise known as a terrestrial group ground pounder rescue group. The ground pounders, you've heard of that. Now, here in New Mexico, you may not be familiar with it, but we have a pretty significant representation of Hispanics than most places. Now, I'll get into this Hispanic term in a bit, but at any rate, 25% roughly of that particular team seemed to be composed of Hispanic rescuers, brown, such as Rodriguez, Maestas, Garcia, Cedevaca. Then came Smith. Now, Smith was a six foot two strapping black guy. Not common for a state comprised mainly of Hispanics, whites, and Native Americans, but that was way cool. That was some diversity there. Now, this past month, I came across this article about diversity in breaking wilderness medicine news in the WMS magazine. The writer, Dr. Rupal Unia, who is a WMS member, wrote about this topic after having gone to the Midway Conference last year. And she wrote on the apparent dearth of diverse cultural representation in the wilderness. And I recommend reading it. I think it's good. Now, you might not be aware, but there is this growing movement, as she mentions, to bridge this 
Adventure Gap. And she mentions a hashtag Adventure Gap, hashtag Color the Crag, hashtag Black Girls Climb, and you can even witness the wonders of hashtag Brown People Camping. I think I can speak to the issue of minorities in the outdoors. I might be considered one of them myself. Now, there aren't a lot of us out there, my friends. My last name, it's Macias. If you haven't figured it out, it's Spanish. I'm a Mexican-American. In other words, I'm what we would call a Chicano because a Chicano was the word I grew up with as a kid in East L.A. Yes, that's where I'm from. A Chicano basically means a Mexican-American, but admittedly not all people like being called this. In New Mexico, they really don't like it. They prefer being called Spanish. Hispanic or Latino may be an okay term, but they're not always Mexican-Americans here. Some of the people that live here in New Mexico actually do have Spanish descent. They have nothing to do with Mexico per se, except, of course, if you read your history, New Mexico was part of Mexico, so it's a bit confusing. Well, my friend Martin Musi, who is the Associate Wilderness Medicine Fellowship Director from the University of Colorado, is Argentine. He's from Argentina. No, he's not Mexican, so he is not Mexican-American. He is not Chicano, but he is from Latin America. He is what you might say a Latino. Now, if you aggregate all of us from East L.A., New Mexico, Texas, Mexico, Central America, and South America, all the way down to Argentina, yeah, we're Hispanics. We're not Spaniards. But many New Mexicans say they are Spanish, but they may have a mixture of Mexican as well. It's very confusing. But don't worry about that, because this podcast is not a minority studies class. Just keep in mind that the demographic in wilderness medicine is probably going to change bit by bit in the future. Now, according to Dr. Rupel, there was a National Park survey that discussed in a CNN article, uh, the discussion was indicating that while the U.S. population is about 38-40% minorities, that the percentage visiting national parks was only 22% minority. Now, it's fairly inherent that most of us in the wilderness community are therefore white. Now, why is that? Well, who knows why? It wasn't an official, double-blinded, randomized study, but maybe there are less minorities in climbing, for instance, or skiing because it isn't really the cultural norm. I didn't really grow up with it. And yeah, I was an anomaly, and I exposed myself to the nearby San Gabriel Mountains with my friends because we were just curious fellows. But our parents thought that, well, my friends and I should probably opt to do the usual team sports instead. My brothers, they played football, and I didn't want anything to do with football, and they thought I was kind of a wacko for going up into the mountains. But culture and family do have an important part in all of this. Some outdoor adventure activities are pretty costly as well. You see, it's probably cheaper to play a pickup game of basketball downtown than it is to spend a day skiing at the resort. Now, unfortunately, ski resort managers are making this divide more evident when one might pay over $100 a day for a lift ticket. Most inner-city kids aren't going to pay for this, and many mainstream white folks living out of their van, permanent campers, go ahead, call them dirtbags, we're not being PC here, whatever you want to call them. Well, they aren't going to want to pay for this ski lift ticket necessarily either, but as the prices continue to rise, so do the principles of exclusion, whether you're white or not. This is not a plug against the free market. This is just the reality of what's happening today. And 
As our society talks about inclusion, I have to say this. Some of our sports, consciously or unconsciously, are maybe by nature exclusionary. But you know, blaming it on expense isn't probably the whole answer because a ticket to a basketball or football game ain't cheap either. So it might be more of a question of exposure. Maybe it's cultural exposure, maybe it's just experience. Some wilderness programs are trying to bridge this gap and focusing on inner city youth to get them to experience the outdoors. And I'm seeing a better minority representation in my local climbing gym, and some of them are really great athletes. Some might be put off by the outdoors, since many of the users of the outdoor tend to be white. Admittedly, look, there's a certain comfort level being around people that look like you. It's human nature. It's okay. It isn't racism. But making one another feel comfortable with a simple smile, whoever you are, can also go far to increase that comfort level for many of us. So go ahead and show them that boulder problem. Show them that ski run. Show them that new trail. Be happy to share the outdoors with someone whose eyes are wide open. But of course, with anybody, no matter who they are, well, teach them to also care for the outdoors. If this is of interest to you, this whole topic, I recommend watching the movie called An American Ascent, based on a book by James Mills, who wrote The Adventure Gap. This is a discussion about a Knowles-sponsored all-African-American team of nine climbers on a bid to summit Denali in 2013. And here's an excerpt. I grew up with people telling me what I couldn't do. You can't because of your color. There's never been a group of black climbers coming together in an expedition to get to the summit of Denali. I think if I do it, hopefully that'll inspire other people to do it as well. It was rough, man, just tackling the head wall with really, really heavy packs. It's almost like the mountain dares you to make a mistake. It's totally destroyed right now. It's going to be hard, and you know it. It's pretty clear that from here on, it's the real deal. We're so exposed, we just got to be ready for anything. And another film that featured the idea of diversity was something I saw at the Real Rock 12 tour a couple years ago. The movie was called Stumped. It was about a 25-minute movie, and it was about Maureen Beck, who was featured in the film. And she basically quipped, I don't want to be known as just a one-armed climber. I just want to be a good climber. And she was born missing her lower left arm, but that hasn't stopped her from going hard. And she'll take whippers on 512s. She'll crush overhanging boulders while shotgunning beers. But she isn't here just to be your inspiration. Because people will say, yeah, look at that one-armed climber. And now I have no excuses. And she basically says like, dude, you've never had any excuses in the first place, which is pretty astute. So Maureen is here to crush the gnar with one bloody stump helping her to get to the top. This isn't a plug saying, hey, you're this type of racial profile, or you have this disability, or whatever diverse thing you think you have going. We're all equal in this, but just be aware that the color is changing. Don't be surprised as diversity pops up. For me, it's like putting green chili in my food. It spices things up. I got a secret ingredient. That stuff made in New York City. Diversity doesn't mean giving up your values or who you are, if those values are fair to all. But it may mean re-examining your ideas about the world around you, or becoming a better person, or being less serious about life and learning to laugh at yourself and giving grace in infinite proportion. So we'll see you this July in Crested Butte. If you have any questions, 
feel free to contact us. Until then, adios. Thank you for listening to the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. This is a production of Elsevier 2019. Be sure to fill out the CME questions and let us know if you have any ideas for future podcasts.